Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Hello and welcome to Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin. I'll be your host today. And today we have a very special treat. Um, Our guest host is RPG designer and one of the most creative people I've ever had the pleasure to work with, Mr. Will Doyle. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. (laughs) Thank you, Sean. Thank you. It's a pleasure to to talk with you. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, well. uh, So that's you. Okay. I was wondering (laughs) who it was and now I know. (laughs) So for, for D&D fans out there uh, who play Adventurers League, Will, you're well known for your work on the epic adventures uh, that have been the highlight of many uh, in the Adventurers League Forgotten Realms campaign. Um, you've also worked on regular Adventurers League adventures, which are almost always highly regarded uh, by the players and the DMs. You've worked on the two most recent D&D open events. Um, you win, like, the one-page dungeon contest every year it seems like or at least you know come in come in second place maybe every once in a while um what people might not know though is that you contributed to uh a few of the adventurers league or i'm sorry to uh to some of the wizards of the coast hardback books as mm-hmm. either a designer or a cartographer or both um including tomb of annihilation uh, where you were one of the three main designers and then storm king's thunder and Baldur's gate descent into avernus and now you are the content manager for the brand new Eberron campaign called Oracle of War for the D&D Adventurers League. And uh, you have a day job and a family. So the, the most important question is, when do you sleep, if at all? <laughs> um, no, I don't sleep much, <laughs> but I, I, I need to. I need to more. But some, yes. somehow it, it, it manages to work out. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I work in video games, uh, as a, as a designer. So, um, I'm used to a bit of crunch and deadlines and, uh, and stuff like that. So it's, uh, yeah, somehow, somehow we get there. Yeah. I, I will be working at my desk at, you know, eight o'clock at night, which would be since you're in the UK, you know, like two or three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I will see you answer an email or pop up for a post. Yeah. And then, you know, and then when I'm awake early in the morning, you're obviously already awakened at work. And I'm like, how can this, <laughs> how can this man do this? No. Uh, but you are continuing to do it. And it's amazing. Somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so the experiences you have as a video game designer, uh, how is that translated for you working on tabletop role playing games? Um, well, in a number of ways, really. I've, I've been working as a video gamer pretty much all my life, for about 20 years now, as a designer for about 20 years. Um, and uh, so it's kind of, it is my life in a way. Um, but I, I guess the, the big things that I've taken from it, one of the things you learn when you work in the video game industry as a designer is that nobody reads anything. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you're... you're trying to write down documentation and, and you just know that people see walls of text and they don't you know they, they tune out um, and especially when you're pitching stuff or dealing with you know company directors and stuff it's quite it's quite tricky to to get your thoughts across so you learn to write very very concisely um, mm-hmm. and a lot of my work is kind of 
summarizing in in the smallest you know, in the shortest way possible um what's cool about something so i think that that's definitely affected it um i've i've learned a lot from that uh, i've also learned that um you learn to take a, a lot of criticism right as a, as a, yes. as a designer you, you're just getting it from all sides um and people are you know people are upfront with it so you develop a very very thick skin um mm -hmm. you know sometimes i feel that i go to work and i just have all day long people say how how rubbish my uh, my ideas are <laughs> <laughs> and and those are your friends <laughs> exactly yes yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so so yeah that 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 helps a lot um because you know you you learn to kind of uh you learn a lot of stuff like you learn to sift through stuff and look at trends in what people are saying about what's wrong with something and kind of focus on the important stuff and not get caught up in all the little things so that's very useful for um for designers in general um i guess another thing i learned from the industry is when i when i started in video games i was very very much uh sort of a mechanical designer i was really interested in in the systems of um of video games and i remember always being frustrated that we you know you'd be working with a publisher or um a marketer and uh you'd be trying to explain something to them um that's quite mechanical but actually is you know the essence of what your game is about and they'd sort of glaze over and then they'd say right so um has it got ninjas in it <laughs> you know and, uh, <laughs> and this was obviously you know many years ago when ninjas were much more of a big thing but um sure. but everybody wanted ninjas in it everybody wanted you know aliens back then and that used to really really frustrate me but then i realized over over the years that they were actually kind of right you know that you need to have this big picture this big kind of um story that people can just grab hold of um and so actually i realized that the mechanical well, mechanical design is obviously really important it has to be hooked on to some sort of um narrative or story or uh, theme that is going to draw people in and it's really those themes that work more than anything else right and and that's that kind of goes along with the criticism thing right is there's always that constant feedback and you know the the customer isn't always right but mm -hmm. all your customers are usually always right yeah um if they're saying the same thing and so that's why it's important as you say to to hone in on the important things that will help improve either the product you're working on at the time or the next one um you know as you as you receive that information mm, absolutely that's i mean it's, it's certainly really we do a lot of user testing and you know sometimes with you know hundreds and hundreds of players and um and you you always get you, you get the uh the feedback from some people that's very very specific and you know go right goes right down into the weeds and that sort of stuff isn't as actually as useful as somebody that just says oh i didn't really understand what the main character's story was about you know or, or something like that and those are the, the the kind of high level stuff that when you start seeing patterns like that emerge again and again mm -hmm. you know those are the, the big things to fix you know yeah yeah. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned story because for our main topic today, we're going to talk about storytelling in, in role-playing mm -hmm. games and tabletop role-playing games. But before we get to the main topic, I wanted you to just take a moment, if you could, and talk about your history with D&D, &D, uh, how you got into the game, what attracted you to the game, um, and then you know, how it translated to what you're doing now, both you know, in, your, in your day job and in uh, tabletop RPGs. Sure. Um, so I've been playing RPGs all my life. Um, I actually started with 
Call of Cthulhu, um, and then uh, when I was very very young, and it was it was it was too much for me and my brother to understand, um, and uh, and we moved on to other different systems, and eventually came to D and D, and we never actually played it that much to begin with. Um, we played a lot of other systems, um, but then we kind of gravitated back to it, and um, you know back then we were playing a kind of uh, strange mix of first edition and second edition and you know whatever all kind of munched together um uh and and it kind of stuck with us um and me and my friends have been playing long dungeons and dragons campaigns for years now um Mm -hmm. so So, i'm gonna interrupt you i have Mm -hmm. an interesting question because you are obviously from the uk Mm -hmm. so what games other than D &D or were popular you know as you were growing up or you know was D &D as popular in in the uk as it was in in the us um it it was very very popular over here it came to us through um a company called games workshop um Mm -hmm. and then there was a kind of uh you know that they were distributing um D and D back then because they were they were a sort of retailer originally and then they got into it and they started making their own books um, and it did become very popular but f- but they also other uh, UK based companies started making their own RPGs and my first exposure to role playing was with um, a game called Dragon Warriors um, which was a really really sort of simplified um, version of it and it came in these you know sort of small paperback format. Um, okay. Uh, like you know, sort of like small novels, which looked like the fighting fantasy books, and the fighting right. fantasy books were massive over here. They were obviously UK based and went on to sell millions worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought this Dragon Warriors book, when I picked it up from the bookshop, was another fighting fantasy book where you'd kind <laughs> of choose your own adventure, you know, and go to different page numbers. Um, and I was completely mystified by it when I was reading it. I was thinking, well, you know, it's not telling me what page to turn to. So, you know, how, how does how does this work? Um, but it was very it was very good, and and that was that was a, a big game over here. Um, and it led in, you know, it was it was a gateway into into D and D, which was obviously still available. Um, but you know, we had other, we had other games with Games Workshop. There was a lot of kind of uh, board games that were very popular that all had kind of fantasy themes, and you know. Um, like I say, all became gateways into role-playing itself. Cool. So when did it become a bigger uh, thing? When did D&D become a bigger thing in, in your life then? So for me, um, it feels like not that long ago, but it was actually eight years ago now, I think. Um, uh, it was during fourth edition D&D, and they, uh, they were, had a dungeon magazine, and they put out a call periodically for um, contributors. Uh, and I remember I was just on my lunch hour and I put together um, an application um, for uh, an article um, and that got accepted. Um, that was for a one of the Tavern Profile articles. And then later oh, yeah. um, I uh, pitched my first adventure and then I had a lot of success with that. And very rapidly um, they, they started coming to me and asking if I could help them out and I would pitch more things to them and I ended up publishing five adventures I think in Dungeon Magazine um, and then when 5th edition came out uh, they uh, approached me because of the magazine work and asked if I'd like to write some stuff for the Adventurers League um, and then uh, while I was doing that um, I always spent a lot of time as, as you mentioned the one page dungeon um, I always enjoy mapping 
Um, and uh, Chris Perkins got in touch with me and asked me to help him out with mapping the giant's lairs in Storm King Thunder, um, which was great fun and obviously a chance to kind of contribute to that in a way because it was, you know, it was kind of that sort of design work as well as cartography. Um, they didn't, he didn't supply me with maps and tell me to make them look pretty. I was kind of doing the draft maps for that product, which a, another cartographer then took on and did properly. And then that led to Tomb of Annihilation and, um, and then recently Baldur's Gate. Um, I was made a guild adept, um, for the Dungeon Masters Guild, uh, which I had a great fun doing. Um, and now here I am with you as a, as a admin for the Oracle of War. Yeah. And that, uh, that is, has been going very well. I, I think, uh, so far the, the uh, reaction has been pretty positive. The story, I think people are, are really digging. We, we have the first four adventures out. So tier one is now covered. Mm. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to finishing up a, another full year of that, taking us all the way up to level yeah. 20, which will be another adventure all in itself. <laughs> it will be. Yeah. So let's get into our main topic, which is going to be storytelling in RPGs. So, I have personally been focusing a lot on encounters, both as a designer and as someone who just thinks about uh, writing and thinks about adventures and, and writes a column about it. I've, I've focused in on that because that's where my focus has had to be for the last, I don't even know how many years. Um, and I fear that to mangle an old adage that I may have been focusing too much on the trees of encounters and missing the forest of story. Uh, so that this has been on my mind a lot recently, and one thing I really admire about all of your work that I've had the, the great fortune to, to run, to read, to play, is that story is always so interesting and, and so intriguing uh, in your adventures that I barely realize that you know there are cool encounters in it because it just all seems so good. And so I want to know, when you plan campaigns, especially one like the Oracle of War, where it's not just one adventure, right? It's 20 adventures over 20 levels. How do you come at that from a story perspective? Well, uh, well first off, thank you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad you, you like uh, like my adventures. But, yeah. um, oh, wow, that is, so there's, a, there's a whole load of stuff um, yes. to, to break down here. So, um I guess for, for me, like first off, this is a kind of the obvious thing is I, I read um, a lot and I watch a lot of uh, movies and TV shows um, and uh, and I try and get out in the world a little bit, you know, and all of that, you know, um, comes together as something you can kind of draw on a little bit. But that's the obvious stuff, I guess. Um, I think really uh, when you're talking about campaign stories, um, it's always a good idea to start small. Um, I remember in fourth edition, you know, fourth edition D and D came with this um, campaign world, but it was really it was it was just a a, a veil, you know, a single country, um, and and it kind of started around really just a single town, um, and I think that's that's always important. It's always for players in order to take on and comprehend the world that you're um, trying to sell to them um they need to have that in bite-sized chunks um sure so i think uh 
you know, like we have with the Oracle of War, we have focused very much on uh, the Moonland and this little town on the edge of the Moonland. Um, and it is, uh, the Moonland in itself is a kind of weird, kind of alien blasted battlefield. Um, and a lot of stuff can happen there. Uh, and you don't have to worry so much in that case about all the other stuff that's going on in, in Eberron and all the other things that make Eberron what it is. You're just focusing on those little adventures to begin with. Um, and I think that applies to any, any campaign, you know, um, don't throw your players right into the middle of a trade embargo, you know, start off with, <laughs> with the, uh, the small stories that, um, that get you going there. Um, so I think that's important. That, yeah. that, that, that wasn't a, uh, rip on Star Wars, oh, was it? It wouldn't possibly be. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, so, and, and then another thing I think, um, that is often overlooked perhaps, uh, is to think about tone. So, you know, what is it, um, that, uh, that makes your world, you know, what it is, um, and kind of like note down what those, what those points are. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, figuring out sort of key statements of this world um and uh and applying everything through those lenses you know right. so so it's it's kind of uh you know with Eberron we might say that um uh it, you know it's coming out of this terrible war and so um the you know the the recent war and the effects of that war on people um should be present in every adventure that we do Great. Um, and, you know, and you can kind of build adventures from that in itself. Um, but I, I also look at kind of going, well, I want this adventure to just be, this one is going to be spooky. And, uh, this one is going to be, you know, a, 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 about a hunt, you know, or something like that. So it's a really simple kind of, um, guiding tone for the whole adventure. Okay. Yeah, I, I love that idea of tone. Um, one thing that I always bring it back to is Edgar Allan Poe talked about unity of effect, writing short stories, where every word in the story should be focusing in on that one thing that you're trying to get the story to do. Mm. And, and that fits, I think, with adventure design, because you can start your campaign with, like you say, start small. Um, you don't have to give a menu of choices at the start. You can let the characters um, and the players kind of feel things out one step at a time, unravel this one strand that's going to um, go through the entire campaign. And as they, the players and the characters learn, you can open that up to, to change. The tone doesn't have to be the same from level one to level 20. No. But if, as long as they know that that's where they're starting from and they can grasp that, then, as you say, one adventure can be spooky. The next adventure can be you know, a pulp action, whereas the next adventure can be a heist. But you've always got that initial tone that you've set that can be the guide that allows you the characters to go off that one main path and then still come back to something they recognize. Yeah, for sure. 
for sure. Yeah. I think I think it's 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 knowing what the knowing what the, your key um, kind of uh, tone principles are going to be, and then when you if you make sure that you've got something to return to, they're like okay, okay we're, we're you know we're back in the in the place we know, um, and mm-hmm. the campaign remains grounded because of that. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it's also um, interesting going back to. Uh, all the different things that you can draw from. I of, I often, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's a lazy trick, but I, I often go, well, I'm going to take something from this movie and smash it against something from this movie or from something from this book. Um, and so, you know, and, and it, and it, it works really well. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, yeah, uh, it, it does. It's an age old, uh, it's an age old trick. Yeah. But it's an age-old trick because it works, and and that's what Eberron was initially, right? I mean, that's how Keith Baker pitched it, mm. or at least in the stories, that's how he pitched it. It was uh, Indiana Jones meets Casablanca. Yeah, yeah, right. And and how could you argue with that? <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, and, and when you, when you're working with a setting like Eberron, those kind of clear ideas allow you know they give you a whole load of stuff to draw on, you know, so watch a load of noir films and you know um it, it's and it just pluck little bits from it um yeah. but yeah so so what else i i guess um uh, another thing so when you're talking about the sort of the sweep of the campaign you know where where is it going to go where is it going to start and end is obviously really important and what are the key beats that you're going to create across the whole campaign um I think it's important to have some understanding of that right from the beginning. Um, but importantly, because it's, you know, it is a, a, an RPG campaign isn't a straight story. You know, it's, it's an interactive story. Um, I think it's interesting to look at those statements and think, how can you make them uh, branches? Mm-hmm. So you can say, uh, Okay, you know, midway through the campaign, uh, the um, the queen is murdered, um, or the queen uh, um, escapes an assassination attempt. And what is the meaning of those different things? And it doesn't have to create branches that then go off into completely different areas. Your branches can still kind of dovetail back to the same path, but it creates different um, consequences within your chain of adventures that you're you're going to present um and that, that can be very very interesting it's 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 exciting for for you because as you're looking at it you don't know what any one group is going to experience mm-hmm. um but i think that's really important you know we, we are making interactive stories you know we're, we're, yeah. not, we're not um dictating precisely what's going to happen Right. And I think the legacy events that we've put into uh, Oracle of War, I think that is, you know, a, a an attempt to capture that sort of home game feel mm. uh, while still keeping it in an organized play setting where things that you do do make a difference. It may not be a completely different adventure that you're playing because of those choices, but things that happen within the adventure definitely do change because of choices you've made in the past. Yeah, for sure, for sure, it's, and it's been a it's been a lot of fun putting them together, and uh, um, and yeah, it, it's kind of the interesting thing with the legacy events is uh, it's I guess it's when you're making one, it's knowing how it's going to end rather than mm-hmm. just throwing a load of stuff out there, um, right. and trying to kind of tie them in quite quickly so people see 
the change um, rapidly as they play through it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what Anything else? Anything else in terms of storytelling in RPGs and what you've learned over the years? Yeah, I, I guess uh, kind of... Um, so one thing that uh, I always think is interesting is that when, so say if you have a, people often criticize TV shows for seeming a little bit aimless. Um, and sometimes I sympathize with those show creators because I don't, you know, they, they don't know, they, they, they don't know exactly where it's going to go. And I think we as dungeon masters, um, games masters, uh, have a very similar thing that, you know, often we don't know exactly where it's going to go and we can't know because it's, you know, it's down to our players in, to some degree. Um, sure. so I think sort of developing as you go is really important. So sort of throwing stuff out there that you have an understanding of where it might lead, but it's not definite that it will go there. Um, and see what people like, you know, so I think on a, in a home campaign that works really, really well. But I think there's also an element of that in our organized play campaign you know we 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 i have an idea of where the oracle of war is going to go and it's quite a, a, a you know um a firm idea in places but it's open to change depending on the feedback we get um, mm -hmm. uh and i also think um uh, obviously a story is based around characters um so it's often a good idea to try and focus your stories on those characters and the journeys that they go on. Um, but for an RPG, keep them really, really simple because uh, players never remember stuff about people and they glaze over when you start doing, uh, you know, backstory dumps or whatever. Um, right. So, yeah, the, the the guy with the twitchy eye, you know, is, is the sort right. of level that you sometimes get to. Um, yeah. And, and there, there is, there's a term in, in literature of the flat character. And often people use that as a, as a pejorative term, although his characters are so flat. But flat characters are important. That, mm. It just means like a one-dimensional character, right? The, the flat yeah. character is the character that can be totally summed up with one word. He's devious. You know, yeah. she is uh, in danger, you know, whatever. Um, and you're absolutely right, I think. In, in RPGs, players have a hard time sometimes remembering their own characters, much less what is going on with this whole realm of other characters. So it's it's okay to have fuller characters, but you don't want to fill your world with them to the point that no one can keep them straight. Yeah. So having the, the one-word the one word defined character... Uh, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good tool to use as a game designer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think players kind of latch onto it. I've often found in my own games that you know I'll have developed characters who I see as being really, really major in the story, but the players, you know, meet a shopkeeper that I make up like on the spot because I wasn't prepared for them to go into that shop, and they end up, you know, that guy's their favorite character, you know, and they keep going back yeah. to the shop and you know, kind of <laughs> speaking to it. There was, right. there was one, uh, uh, cleric that I had, I had this known cleric who was always, whenever they went to the temple, he was always inventing something new. And it was as simple as that, you know, that they, they, they'd always want to go and see him just to see, okay, this time he's, 
making some big mechanical dragon and he's halfway up it and it's belching out flames you know and um and it was really simple it was like that was the only thing that that guy had going you know but, but they they loved him you know um yeah and, okay I, I suppose the the other thing i would say uh that i've learned about um stories is uh i i kind of I think often with adventures in terms of sort of uh, templates. So I kind of think of um, it's really flows through adventures or what this what this adventure is. So this adventure might be this is a kind of um, this adventure is a sandbox, you know, or um, this adventure is going to be a simple three path investigation or, you know, and, and I, you, as you write a lot of these things, you you kind of develop these templates that you quite like. Um, and I try and fit stories around those. So that, that creates variety within the campaign. So I try and say, you know, so not every adventure feels like we've done the same thing, um, or we've done the same thing in the same sort of order. Uh, and that will just, that just helps keep, it keeps people, as they reach each new part of the story, they kind of go, oh, wow, this feels different from the last bit, you know. It, right. Um, and then even even when as you learn those templates and you learn that that rhythm of an adventure that you go can go back to or different kinds of rhythms, then you can take one of those templates and just give it a little twist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it it doesn't take a lot of work, but the the important thing is kind of it's like kind of like a, mu a jazz musician, right? You can't just pick up the the saxophone and just play this amazing jazz you have to learn all the notes first and then once you learn all that you can forget everything you've learned and and do your thing uh but understanding those templates and actually breaking them down and seeing what makes adventures tick uh is so important to being able to deliver a good story mm -hmm. that if you go breaking that template before you understand why it works then it might not work when you break it yeah, absolutely. And and it's and it's why it's it's always good for uh designers to be reading stuff, you know. Um and some sometimes, you know, I've I've gone through periods of my life where my you know, my uh RPG group hasn't been nearby and I've still sat down and read adventures, you know, and it just becomes a nice thing to to do. Um and as you read them, you know, look at them and, and see see what those templates are. Um so thinking about this in terms of a role-playing game as a storytelling vehicle, uh, what have been some of your favorite either D&D or RPG products in terms of delivering that story? Uh, so for me, I think my favorite uh, campaign, which was very, very story-based, um, was an old campaign for the uh, original Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game. Uh, which was the enemy within campaign, um, which, uh, I played when I was a teenager. I ran it for, um, a few friends, uh, and it was just amazing. I think it's, uh, there's parts of it I don't think have been beaten since, you know. Um, yeah. but it has a, uh, a wonderful kind of, um, in a way, it's a sort of, uh, rags to riches kind of story. Like, so, the, so the Warhammer world is, grim and dark you know and it's um it's a terrible place where uh disease is rife um and everyone's scrounging for pennies and uh um you know it's it's kind of low magic in a way um 
and so the characters that you play are, are rat catchers and uh you know um outriders and mercenaries or um shopkeepers you know sort of simple roles um and in this story uh, in the enemy within um it takes you from that all the way through to the end of it where the fate of the empire rests on your shoulders um, nice. and you know this this great uh destiny awaits your characters so it's kind of like the the core in a way of what D&D is you know which is the start small you know where you're uh fighting rat swarms uh, and the end of it you're you know fighting gods or or whatever um, nice. and the en enemy within starts off with um, well it kind of goes through it's that interesting thing we were talking about earlier about it goes through different types of adventure and very very different tones so um there's one adventure which is a big open world exploration you know where you're just kind of traveling or traveling around on a river barge um seeking adventure um there's another which is a sort of diabolic kind of murder mystery um in a town there's another which is about um the fate of this city and all this kind of scheming politicians and stuff so it's you know it it, it gets very political but it always mm. manages to keep simple which i which i absolutely loved you know so yeah yeah, I, I think the best ones have a rich story behind it, but also allow the characters to become part of that rich story rather than just hearing the rich story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and sometimes I think the story, in a way, sometimes the story is also the world. You know, mm -hmm. that um, if I think back on, you know, what was the overarching story for the whole Enemy Within campaign? Well, it kind of changes as you go through it. But what I think the players remember is what the empire was like and what life was like in this place. And there's some authors really do this, I think, where, you know, actually you read a story and you, you think it's the world that shines through more than, more than anything. And that's, that's what grabs you. And you get these great world building stories. Um, and yeah, you, you kind of forget what the main narrative was, but you always remember that city that that book was set in or, or whatever, you know. Um, and I think D and D's, can be a little bit like that you know if you've got a strong a strong campaign world you know we're taking your players to you know on a journey through this place um right so bringing out the world and its cultures and its religions and you know um is is part of the story in itself so. yeah i i think you know I, you think through all of the D D settings and all of the best ones have that Right, Dark Sun has that story mm. behind it. That as you g gain more power as a character, you have to start interacting with not just the immediate uh, threats in front of you, but the threat that brought the world to where it is today. Mm. Right, all the sorcerer kings, uh, all the 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 magic that destroyed the world to begin with. You now have a large stake in that as you gain in power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also in, like, it was interesting that in fourth edition, they, they kind of codified that, um, that growth, you know, that you had the tiers in that where you'd start off at the heroic tier and then you'd go to the paragon tier where the actual right. advice, you know, was, okay, now you're, you're beyond the, you know, roaming around trying to find gold and, you know, going to dungeons and you're now dealing with, um, you know, entire countries, you know, uh, mm -hmm. um, that their fate lies in your hands. And then you go to the epic tier and it's like, okay, now we're going across the plains, you know? It's, right. So. Okay. Uh, so 
you are now going to create a an adventure. You're going to write it. Um, you get a story in your head. What is your process from taking that story in your head to getting it to an adventure on paper or in a file? <laughs> well, I, I very. I mean, I, I rarely in my head am able to come up with a complete story. I'll, I'll come up with. That's some of the stuff we spoke before. I'll come up with these kind of, okay, this is the tone. This is maybe the template that I want to have in mind. This is the kind of, you know, these are the different things I want to introduce maybe um, at this stage of the, of the campaign. And it's really working. It's structuring those thoughts into some sort of format. So, so I always use, um, a kind of what I'd just call a bubble chart, which is, um, I'll get a piece of paper and I'll, uh, I'll write down, okay, to use, you know, a, a rubbish example, I'll say, okay, it starts in a tavern. Um, so I'll write down the tavern and I'll encircle that. And then I'll draw little spokes coming off that. And as ideas come into my head, I'll create new bubbles and then, you know, new things coming off that. And it allows you to kind of, you know, go in all sorts of directions. But at the same time, because of those lines, you know, you're looking back. Everything's connected in some way. Um, and so that bubble chart then in some ways becomes a flow chart at the same time um, for the adventure. And it does end up in some cases looking like, um, you know, the scribblings of a madman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say with you, they probably always look like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would, I am not going to show anyone any of these things, but you know, like the, the one, the ones I created for a big project like tomb of annihilation, you know, they, they were just, um, huge and, and, uh, bonkers. <laughs> so, um, but, but, but they meet that, you know, obviously it's your thoughts as you've gone through them. Um, so you, you, you can look at it and, and go back to it and understand it. So that's something I kind of uh, always start with, just a brainstorming method. Um, and then I try and break that down into the key beats. But really, as I said previously, it's good to think of it as choices. I think, well, often, you know, people think, okay, well, yeah, what are these big story beats? But remember, again, it's interactive, you know. So what what are the big choices you want to put to the player and this is something i've started doing increasingly actually is just writing down a, a bullet point list of decisions that players mm. are going to have okay. um because that, that, that's absolutely vital i think yeah yeah i i think my adventure design is similar i i probably don't write down as much as you do the the madman is all happening in my head mm -hmm. uh rather than on the, the page um but it is a matter of putting on many different hats. You know, at first you are the storyteller. Then you go back through it as, as you said, the player. And as the player, how would I handle this? What decisions would I want to have to make? So as the designer, then I put those decision points into the adventure. Uh, and if you go through your design, your story design, um, while you're doing your adventure design, wearing all of those different hats as the designer, as the DM, as the player, then the the story gets richer and richer as you iterate through your different drafts. Yeah, yeah, def definitely. And another thing I do when it comes to drafting is that once you've kind of you start writing it, 
I often, as part of the sort of self-editing process, I will go through and sometimes I'll just get a highlighter and mark um, anything that isn't obviously, there isn't a way for the players to learn this. And this is quite useful, you know, that you, even a room description, you kind of go highlight, how do the players, are they ever going to find out about this? You know, um, and sometimes it's good to keep some of that stuff in for the DM, you know, because the DM also has to have an understanding of how this place came to be or how these people got where they are. Um, but it's a, it's a useful uh, measure just to go, oh, hold on a minute. I've, I've put this paragraph of text in about this character's backstory. You know, how are they ever going to learn it? <laughs> so it's yeah, it's um, it's a useful uh, useful trick. Yeah, I, I love that point about the DM because many times I'll be writing something and it's exactly as you said. I'll write it down and I'll realize that the players will probably never know this. Should I leave it in? And I've started to get to the point where I tell myself, I am writing this for the DM. Mm. I am going to drop in jokes that only the DM will know. <laughs> I am going to drop in information that the DM can can put in his or her pocket and reveal in some way if they choose, but it doesn't necessarily have to come out. Because you know we as adventure designers are writing for the DMs, and they deserve you know to be entertained as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like I said earlier about, you know, people sitting down and reading these adventures for fun. You know, people do. Um, so there, there, there has to be a bit of that for sure. I want to ask you specifically, I'm going to put you on the spot. When you came up with the idea for your Pudding Fair adventure, um, which I got a, an opportunity to write some encounters for, and I was super excited to do that. <laughs> um, that is a very weird adventure. It does not follow any of the normal patterns that you would have for uh, an adventure. You know, we talked about templates earlier. This kind of breaks the idea of even templates mm. uh, because it is sort of a Groundhog Day sort of adventure uh, where things happen over and over again. Where did you come up with that idea and how did you make it work as an adventure when it's such a strange way to tell a story <laughs> uh well it was part it was part of that kind of crossing the streams thing you know i i, I just thought um it would be nice I'd, I'd had for a while the idea of doing something based on groundhog day you know that was the obvious inspiration um but at the time the guild adepts were uh we were writing stuff that was tying in with uh morden Cannon's tome of foes and mm -hmm. Nobody had taken uh, gnomes and halflings, which was uh, uh, one, one of the chapters. Um, and right. I just, I just thought, could I possibly mix those two things? You know, Groundhog Day and <laughs> gnomes and halflings. So that that was the kind of the concept of it. When it came to the, yeah, and, and then I realised, well, how the hell is this thing going to work? Um, and I don't know where it came from, but but really, because there's a kind of mechanic in there that there's all these different things that can happen. Um, and obviously, in a Groundhog Day scenario, they have to happen at the same time. Um, uh, you know, every time, in you know, you repeat. Um, so yeah, it was just a little, a little bit of a breakthrough where it was like an event can happen when the players get there, and then that puts that time down in in your log. You know, so you don't say we didn't say you know, oh, in, at ten in the morning, this character does this. It's like you walk around the fair, and when you meet this character, you just note what time it is. And right now, it always takes place then. 
Yeah. I, I don't know where that that thought came from. It was just you know, as as I was kind of immersed in that story, it it, it all came about. But um, but yeah, there's and, and there's some other stuff. There's I'm not going to talk about some of the other stuff there because there's some spoilers. But um, right, yeah, there, there were a few uh, mythical things I'll say that um, I liked. You know, some sort of folklore things um, that I wanted to get in there. So nice. Is there anything else? that you would like to touch on about uh, storytelling through RPGs? I th- I think I think that's it, really. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, thank um, you. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank everyone out there for listening. Um, if you'd like to support the show, there are many things that you could do. We have a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, if you can give there for just even a dollar a month would help us immensely with hosting and editing and so on. Um, if you can't help us monetarily, giving us a review on whatever medium you listen to the show on uh, would be helpful. You know, a five-star review through Apple Podcasts really uh, elevates the show and, and lets more people know that about what we're doing here. Or you can just talk about us on your social media accounts. That is super helpful as well. Uh, Will, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I'm I'm pretty much just on Twitter nowadays. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm at BeholderPie is my handle there. Okay, excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can talk with everyone from Misdirected Mark at the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Will, what are we going to do now, good sir? (laughs) I think we should uh, go kill some monsters in a narratively dramatic fashion. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Well done. <laughs>